Bye. I am Ed Rogers. And I am D.L. Golden. And we're and the authors <laughs> And I'm Steve Axelrod. Yeah. I wrote the uh, Henry Kenneth Streets for Poison Pen Press. Um, nice. I'm doing something quite different now, but um, uh, my um, the company was purchased by Sourcebooks, which is a bigger company. And mm-hmm. since then, things have been kind of unpredictable. Uh, I turned in my next book about a year and a half ago. <laughs> Uh, okay. hardly seems possible, but, um, uh, after six months, I decided that I was just not going to wait around anymore and started writing something completely different, um, mm-hmm. which I'm just about to finish. I'm just finishing this weekend, actually, I'm hoping. Um, the interesting thing is that I told the head of source books, this woman's name is Dominique Raka. I just emailed her about the book. I said, you know, I write these mysteries and, um, I have a standalone spinoff thriller that you've had for a while. That's, I said, it's currently being um, looked at by the acquisitions committee or whatever. But this isn't about that. This is about this other book that I'm working on. And um, my wife was like, do not do that. Don't call the head of the publishing house. You know, go above your editor's head. But it's not going above my editor's head because um, it's not about, it's not a mystery. I mean, there's no way that Poison Pen would ever publish this book. So it's not about that source books publish lots of other kinds of books um so of course i sent it anyway and 10 minutes later raka wrote me back and said i want to see it as soon as you're done so that was cool 10 minutes is better than 18 months i gotta say yeah, but, uh, for sure. 100%. <laughs> yeah that's, that's quite the adjustment for turnaround i'll say that uh, i don't know you know who knows what it means ultimately but it was kind of heartening people have liked the idea the basic idea of the book is for years, um, I've this sort of thought has haunted me about the Holocaust and what we lost when those. It's, it's kind of a great uh, gene pool, you know. And what did we lose when those six million people died? Like, what would be like now if some of those people, you know, like hadn't died? I mean, and it just you know, I think about it from time to time. But then I maybe it's because I saw everything everywhere all at once or something. But I was thinking about like alternate worlds. And I had this idea of a um, a person who came from an alternate world where there had been no Holocaust because Hitler died of crib death in 1899. Um, and so all those people didn't die. And what was, what, you know, was his, was his world like? And his world is like a hell of a lot better than ours. His world is good. And he's decided to help us get there. And his plan for doing it, since I also have time travel, I mean, we're going, it's fantastical craziness, but, um, uh, his plan is to go back into time and rescue these four women who, in his world, wound up being incredibly essential to creating the sustainable society that he's living in. But in our world, they died in the concentration camp. So the book was sort of four adventures of this guy going back in time, you know, to the Warsaw Ghetto, to, to um, Vienna before the Anschluss, to um, Paris just before the American liberation of the city, um, and rescuing these people and the involvements he winds up. It was it's funny because it was supposed to be six. And um, he started getting involved with these women and these people. And it got so intense that I had to change the entire, the book changed as I was writing it um, and became this highly emotional kind of romance, two kinds of a parental kind of romance and also romantic romance, both. 
Um, <laughs> I really had no idea what the hell I was doing the whole time I was writing it, but it's been kind of made the research, the amount of research I've done, the crazy shit I found out just researching this book, you know, has been, in fact, if the book succeeds, I want to go to Europe and visit some of these places. There was this little um, village, a hidden village in the Sorosi Forest south of Amsterdam, where like a hundred Jewish families lived for like six months. And not just Jewish families, they were like uh, deserters from the Dutch army and German deserters and uh, downed airmen who were like had escaped from prison of war camps and were or just were wandering around. So it's a crazy society. They these little and they've reconstructed it. Apparently, there's these huts buried in the in the dirt in this forest. And um, you know, it's fast. The whole thing is fascinating. I love to just go there. There's all these. I like to go to Warsaw. I'd like to go to Vienna. I'd like to go to all the places in my book because you know I don't never go anywhere and never do anything except you know read books and google shit but anyway so <laughs> hopefully next week i'll send it off to dominique and um she'll love it and she'll publish it that would be cool but uh meanwhile my other book is just like languishing i have no idea don't really understand what's going on but um well your new one that's an insanely fascinating take what genre would you like if you're pushing that into a genre what genre are you calling that i'm calling it um Speculative sci-fi fantasy, historical romance adventure. <laughs> Let's just mash them all together. Yeah, that's fun. brilliant. <laughs> yes, basically, um, is what I would. If you're going to put it somewhere in the bookshop, we're in the speculative sci-fi. Um, I mean, because there's, you know, string theory, multiverse, time travel, you know, but um, it's all basically about uh, Tikkun Olam, you know. The, Repair the world. That's just what it's about. Uh, this world needs some repair, let's face it. And uh, this allows me to have all my fantasies. Like in this other world, John Lennon wasn't killed. The reason John wasn't killed in this other world is that they had electric vehicles. I don't know if you were aware of this, but um, uh, that idiot who killed Lennon had tried to commit suicide by um, uh, breathing the exhaust pipe of his car in Hawaii. And failed, uh, but of course, in that world, there are no tailpipes, so we just threw himself into a volcano. So there was no one to kill John Lennon. I even wrote the lyrics for a new Beatles song, which is really fun. Um, but that's the least of it. I mean, you know, you have a world where, like, you know, we've dealt with climate change. One of the the son of one of these women um, became an Exxon executive in that world, and he was the Exxon executive who actually believed the Exxon scientists. And actually forced his company and all these other companies into like sustainable, um, you know, uh, energy sources and stuff. And um, I have the first Jewish president. That's another. And uh, this first Jewish president blew both Carter and Kennedy out in the in the um, in their world in the primaries, and then annihilated Reagan. <laughs> so and had two terms. So there was no Gingrich. There was no Tea Party. There was no you know all the nightmarish crap, no Trump, you know, no Iraq war, you know, whatever, no 9-11. This is a much better world. Anyway. <laughs> and this little girl we say from Ravensbrook grows up to become a speaker of the house. And uh, the two of them, anyway, it's fun. It's just my, it's a complete, I, I, I really should just call it fantasy because it's my like, it's like my refuge in fantasy for like the, what the world could be like if it hadn't gotten so insanely screwed up over the last 50 years. But anyway, it's been really fun. I'm sort of, I'm about to finish. I don't know what to do. I'm like, 
Oh no. And I don't know what to, what to write now. I mean, all the things I was writing don't interest me anymore. And I don't know what to write next. I have an idea though. I'll tell you this really cool. I, I give you this idea because I don't think anybody but me would be nutty enough to try to take advantage of this. But I read a really interesting um, uh, article, academic article about 1984. Um, and they said that they pointed out that uh, the appendix at the end about Newspeak, because he wrote this whole elaborate thing about you know, Newspeak, that it was written in past tense. And the interpretation of this guy, and a number of people have, is that this is a very subtle way of Orwell saying that this, you know, unstoppable kind of monolithic society crumbled because this, this text about um, Newspeak is uh, historical. It's like, this is how they had distorted language in this society before it crumbled. And so I'm like, oh, so they're saying that like this, the, the Ocean, Oceania and Big Brother and all that shit, it all fell apart somehow. And I'm like, how? And so that's what my next, that's what I want to work on. I'm working on this. I wrote like the first 50 pages of that book in like two days, but I was like, I don't know what the hell I'm doing, you know? But um, so instead of writing a sequel to 1984 called 2084, that's something that I'm really interested in doing next. But, you know, and part of me wants to do something simple. I'm a house painter. You know, house painting is hilarious. Uh, I know a zillion anecdotes and I had this idea a while ago about a kid who, you know, rich kid and his father won't let him have his inheritance unless he keeps a job for a year. So he winds up working for an Nantucket house painter, you know, hijinks ensue. It would be so easy, no research, just sit down and like write crap that's already happened and sort of, you know, little romance, just a simple. So that's tempting. I don't know. Maybe I'll do that. It might, it might be a nice break from all this heavy, big, high-ground yeah. stuff that you've got going yeah, on. Yeah, that's how my wife says. Just have some fun. You know, and she, she, well, yeah, well, she painted with me for years, so she knows the insane, you know. And, it's, and also, anything you really know a lot about. I don't know, you, you ever read John McPhee? That are, he, wrote, he wrote for The New Yorker for years. He wrote uh, nonfiction stuff. He wrote about birch bark canoes and golf players and, and geology. And whatever the hell he wrote about, it was always really interesting because... It was just, you do that deep a dive into anything and it gets interesting. Like I found that with football because my wife is a football freak. And I had no, it was guys jumping into piles as far as I was concerned. I was like a New York kid. I had no interest. And, you know, I've been watching football for 20 years with her because she knows so much about the game. And as soon as you start knowing, finding out about stuff, it just gets interesting. So, um, I don't know. Uh, So, so just there's an interest in just someone who really knows about something, writing about it. You know, uh, you should be able to read my book and then paint your house perfectly after I'm done, you know, whatever. Um, so that's another possibility. You know, I don't know, the mysteries, I don't know. I, I have two more in mind, but, you know, I, I left one, I was half done. I'm half done with the seventh one. And I'm like, why am I writing this? They don't even want the last book I wrote. Or they, I don't, they don't want it, but they're not, you know, they're not burning up the phone lines to get me to turn it in or whatever. So I didn't feel a lot of enthusiasm. So I thought, fuck it, I'm yeah. going to do something else. So, and then I, how long, so how long have you been writing? I wrote my first story when I was 10 because I realized that the elevator in my building on East 82nd Street was carrying a gun. The guy was packing. <laughs> I was like, got a gun, you know? And, uh, <laughs> I didn't remember what my crazy story was about, but he was like undercover in this building. And I was watching, I was reading, you know, 
James Bond novels and stuff. They were just coming out when I was that age. Uh, so I'm sure it was terrible. I remember I had this wonderful old prof- teacher at Dalton, this private high school I went to, named Hortense Tyroller. She was this kind of rock-ribbed, iron-haired biddy of the old school. And I turned in one of my adventure stories to her. And she turned it back to me, and she she had this fountain pen, and she wrote in this perfect copper-plate handwriting on the top of it, this story is flat as a pancake here. <laughs> I love the deer. That was the best part. Um, but anyway, so yeah, I, I wrote a lot of really bad shit. And it's weird because when I graduated from college, I could have gone to like grad school or something. I could have tried to go to grad But I had absolutely, you know, I was sure I would never get in. I knew what I was writing was crap and it was pointless. I had learned how to do this sooner. It took me a really long time. They say that 10,000 hours, how about 100,000 hours? <laughs> Seriously, I mean, it's just like, I remember I did when I, I wrote a, I went to Hampshire, which is this, was this experimental, I don't know what Hampshire's like these days. It almost went under a few years ago, but it seems to be back. But anyway, you wrote a, you didn't have a final exam or you had a division three concentration. And what I did for my division three concentration was I wrote a novella and the teacher I wrote it for just tore it to pieces, you know, and um, I looked at it later and I was like, yeah, it's bad, you know. So it took me a long time to get even moderately good. So uh, I never had much confidence. One of the few things I have confidence now, though, is the writing. I think I'm pretty, you know, I'm pretty good. I would never have tried to write this Holocaust book if I didn't feel I could pull it off, you know. Right, right. Well, I mean, you're six, you're six traditionally published novels in, right? I mean, so you, mm-hmm. you definitely have the chops to say, I know what I'm doing, at least. Yeah, right? and I feel it. I know I feel that way, too. Also, I have a, a half-million-word Hollywood novel that I broke into two. Um, which is, which everyone reads it, loves it, but it's, I don't know, it's outdated now. I would have to update it to, you know, streaming and all this other crap. I'm in the Writers Guild, but that's a long story. And so I'm technically on strike, but I haven't worked in Hollywood for a really long time. Oh, um, wow. Yeah. I got a development deal with a guy who did a show called Barney Miller a long time ago. Barney Miller was a half hour pop situation comedy kind of like brooklyn 99 kind of the forerunner of something like brooklyn 99 um danny was like six foot seven in cowboy boots jewish guy <laughs> and uh unbelievable just i had written this screenplay about a father so my father's george axrod he was a pretty famous writer wrote the seven year rich and how to murder your wife and breakfast at tiffany's and the mentoring candidate and a bunch of other stuff um and I was sort of toiling in his shadow for years. And I wrote a movie, a thing about that called One Man Show. And it was under option for years. I must have made like, you know, $150,000 from that. Over how many years? Oh, it was a year. It's 15, you know, 15. How much, if you're, it takes 20 years to make that money. You're not really making that much money in any given year. But it was always under option. And I remember you know, the, the father was named Harlan Mallory in the thing. And I remember Danny Arnold saying, <laughs> Danny, and I was like, hey, hey, Danny, whatever. And then when I, I couldn't please him, and when I finally turned in another screen, he said, just write something, just write what you want to write. Just write something. Just, any, I don't care. He was paying me, like, at least development deals. I was getting, like, 4200 bucks a week. And if he signed up for the next step, it would have been, like, 6200 and then, you know. Anyway, so I turned in a script, and his response to it was, how did the kid who wrote one-man show write this piece of shit? I was like, 
I don't really know how to answer that one, Danny. It's like pretty much the same process, though. You know, hitting the keys, open the final draft. I don't know. Anyway, so uh, but I did. Danny did get me into the writers guild. That he was a guild signatory producer. Um, so that was cool. <laughs> um, and it was that, like I needed that year. I needed root canal. You haven't lived till you've walked into a dentist with writers guild insurance. You know, it's like I'm having please. You like some tea? Would you like, you know, uh, it's the best insurance in the world. I mean, Michael Shaben, who's a wonderful novelist, he tries to do a screenplay every year just so he can keep the Writers Guild insurance. It's the only reason he works in Hollywood is just to keep the freaking insurance. Um, right. So, I, I'm an out. There's a word for me. I don't know what it is. Inert or, you know, I don't know. Non, non-active, inactive member or whatever. So you don't get, you only get all that advantages if you've actually worked in the calendar year you know and that's why that's why shaben's always hustling you know to write a spider-man movie or whatever he does yeah. but um yeah so i don't have any of the advantages but it's fun to be in the guild and sort of i'm definitely is, rooting, rooting for really, them right really cool we haven't met anybody who has been associated with the writers guild yet i think yeah. we've had a few people that we've talked to um that they like they emailed us and said, "Hey, I'm a writer. I'd, I'd like to come on. I, I'm I've written on these shows and stuff." And after the writer strike happened, it seemed like a lot of people have they've been busy. You know, they've been out striking and doing mm-hmm. all this other stuff. And so we haven't heard back from anybody else on that. Okay. So it's really cool to have somebody. Well, basically, who- when there's a writers guild strike, all the writers start writing novels and stuff. Yeah. You know, they're busy. They're finally going to get to that novel, and then they find out that it's actually a little trickier. Because when you write a screenplay, I've written like 15 screenplays you know, for what it's worth, which isn't much. But, um, you know, you there's a lot you don't do. You know, Virginia Woolf said something I really liked one time. Her husband said, uh, Leonard said, how was your writing? How did writing go today? And she said, oh, it was great. I got them off the couch, across the room, and through the French doors onto the veranda. You know, um, and if you write, you really understand. It's like these transitions are incredibly intricate and difficult, all the spine stitching. If you write a book, if you write a screenplay, it's just like cut to veranda, you know, or whatever. And then also you have, um, I remember my dad told me this story about, it was like Clark Gable and and uh, some big actress of the day. And um, the they'd written this thing where they were trying to, one was in the East Village and one was in like Harlem and they were trying to meet in Times Square for the 42nd Street ball drop or something like that. And the guy said that, you know, why would he be interested in her and what would she be doing that? And, you know, blah, blah, blah. And, and the guy said to the studio executive, you know, when it's Carol Lombard and Clark Gable, all you care about is when, not why. You know, and it's like, if you had, it's like the, the Godfather, okay? It's a perfect example. I just watched The Godfather like again and i read it again also recently and the book's good it's, you know, it's it's compulsive reading but it doesn't have brando in it <laughs> you know i mean the, the don corleone in the book is just a lesser figure than the don corleone in the movie because brando and you know times 10 for al pacino is the greatest thing he ever did mm-hmm. you know for sure don't you know i could never let that happen to you? don't you know i would use all my power to stop that from happening um, unbelievable. So, you know, uh, movies do that for you. They give you these amazing characters and these transitions and there's music and the settings, you know, when you write, you know, the, the, a guy who's in Chicago, you, yeah. 
Oh yeah, okay, let's go. Chicago, what about it? You know, that's on you. You have to make Chicago real. I mean, obviously, it's not going to be the real Chicago, like Hemingway's Pamplona in Sun Also Rises. Mm-hmm. Right? That's very different to me than probably whatever the real. Who knows what the real Pamplona? Is. I'm sure it doesn't look anything, but at least it's real for me. We made it together. That's what I love about reading. You make this shit together. But you know, maybe that's necessary. Just put a camera and point it at Chicago. Boom, done. You know yeah. what I mean? So a lot of it's, it's a lot easier in some ways to write a screenplay. Basically, all you need is the structure and the dialogue, and that's about it. Um, and if you if you've been doing that for years, and you suddenly realize, oh my god, I can't just say exterior, you know, Daily Plaza, Chicago. I've got to like describe it. it. Like, what does it look <laughs> like and smell like and whatever, you know. Um, that's what I've had, like, you know, my guy goes to Warsaw, and I have to describe Warsaw now and Warsaw then. And I've never been either place. A friend of mine actually lived in Warsaw for five years, and he helped me a lot. So that was good. But, like, you know, it's a lot more work writing. But the thing about it is, it's also much more satisfying to me, because then it's like, it's all you. Yeah. You know, sometimes, especially with these with these mysteries where I'm writing these intricate plots and stuff, and they're like little Sudoku games or something, you know? You sort of think, oh, it'd be so nice to be um, like Vince Gilligan, you know, and have an eight-person writer's room doing Better Call Saul or Breaking Bad or whatever. And you could say you have a big whiteboard. Let's let's beat this one out. Let's uh let's break this fifth episode of season six, you know. Um, and uh, I don't have that. I just got me, you know. Sometimes I'll say to my wife or my son's good writer. Sometimes I'll call him and I'll say, what, how would this work? And he's, you know, but mostly I'm just on my own, you know, and um, ultimately I, I like that because then when it's finished, it's like, it's all mine. Like it or don't like it or whatever, but at least, you know, it's just my thing. I made a thing. What does sometimes say? I made a hat, you know, I made the hat. It's my hat. Um, so I like that. I like it. Yeah. Um, so, you are, completely traditionally published right you don't have any indie works that you've published oh no i have i have i have three i go three ways so indie i have the six books that are published and then i published uh, a very dark noir thriller called heat of the moment with a tiny like micro publisher called gutter books um and my agent was like well it's basically self-publishing it's like glorified self-publishing you know I was like, well, Alan, not really, because the difference between gutter books and, like, self-publishing is at least one other person had to think your book was okay. Yeah. <laughs> like, right. Not a lot, but at least one guy had to like your book besides you, you know, to get it. I don't really have much. I did publish. I published my Hollywood novel, um, self-published it, mainly because I just wanted people to be able to read it, and I knew that, yeah. you know, uh, it was the only way. No one's going to look. If you look at that manuscript pile, you know, just bring the truck around. We have the manuscript. You know, it's, no one's gonna. It's daunting. Yeah. But the book is nice, and my uh, my sister in law is a very good graphic designer, and she did a kind of a chip kid type cover for it. It looked really cool. Um, and then I published a thriller, which I've been sort of I don't know using for parts for ever since. Like my friend collects Vanagons, Volkswagen vans. And he always has like four of them and he's using the brake lines for one for the other. Or he's got the, you know, he's always cannibalizing them for whatever Vanagon he's actually using at the moment. And that's what I've done with this thriller, which I've self-published. A lot of the things that I used in there, I've used, adapted, changed over. And so it's not really, you know, 
uh, people, I get these calls from these weird groups that say, we will help you, you know, sell your self-published book. You know, we can get your self-published book. And I'm like, no, I don't want that sold. That book's dead. I've already, and there's more stuff I want to take out of it. There's a scene where the, where the guy fights his way out of a Upper East Side, you know, post-war high-rise building, um, which is a really fun um, uh, action sequence that didn't really make any sense that book because he was a kid and he really wasn't an appropriate Rambo figure. Plus, he was shooting at Secret Service people, which made him seem like kind of a psycho. Anyway, that was bad. But the actual the action beats in it are great. So I'm taking them at some point. But uh, so I did publish those two books, self-published. And I, you know, what I came away from was like, it's a bad thing to do. It's a stupid, self-indulgent, bad thing to do. And there are gatekeepers because there's gates and there's gates for a reason. Um, (laughs) Like in my Hollywood novel, my guy, the hero is a, uh, he's a producer who kind of flamed out. And I was working for the story department at Fox. And he loves this script written by my, Heroin. It's kind of sleepless in Seattle. They don't meet for a long time, but they cross paths all the time. And uh, his boss doesn't like the, the script. And so he goes to her boss and gets fired. Um, you don't do that. So in firing him, his boss says to him, uh, you hike in the canyons all the time, right? With your dog, you and your wife. I remember you saying something to me about that. And he says, yeah. Well, have you ever noticed those enormous wooden structures like U-shaped wooden structures that they have in the canyons. Um, they're called debris basins. You ever seen those? And he's like, yeah, what about them? Well, their purpose is after forest fires, when the ground is unstable and there's mudslides in the next rain, they catch the debris and prevent it from overwhelming the houses below. Yeah. That's your job. Your job is to catch all the crap that comes in and so we don't have to deal with it. Your job is to say, oh, this piece of garbage and this piece of trash and this hunk of a destroyed house might have some value. No, you just lumber. Just do your fucking job and, you know, no one's interested in your opinion, basically. Um, and I did that job. for I was a script reader in Hollywood for quite a while. And, I, you know, I, I read a lot of bad scripts. A lot of bad scripts. They all had somebody named Bubba in them. <laughs> and Bubba, whatever Bubba did, he had a girlfriend who didn't approve of it. And he was always going off to do it. And she was saying, if you leave here, I won't be here when you get back. I can't tell you how many scripts I read that line. And Bubba always says, hey, I'm a cop, damn it. Or I'm a firefighter, damn it. Or, you know, I'm a, I'm a dental hygienist, damn it. Or whatever the fuck you Anyway, so I read a lot of really bad scripts. And it's actually good to read bad scripts because you learn a lot of what, like, not to do. Don't have a character named Bubba, for instance. I don't. So that, that kind of actually segues us pretty good into our the question we always ask all of our writers. What What is a piece of writing advice that you just stand by that you think is the best piece you've ever gotten? Best piece I've ever gotten? Well... There's practical and there's artistic. Hemingway's really good piece of practical advice is never finish a scene that day. Um, always leave. Always he said, always leave off when you're going good, mm-hmm. and then you come back and and you and you want to pick it up the next day. If you get if you write yourself all the way down, and this is what he said Faulkner did. He said he would have given up his career to be Faulkner's editor. 
you ride it all the way to the into the ground every day, you're starting from scratch. It's like getting on the bicycle at the bottom of the hill every day, you know, instead of having any momentum for going up. Mm-hmm. Um, so said, mom said there's two rules for writing a novel, but no one knows what any of them are. Um, but he had a good rule too. He said, if it should occur to you to cut something, do so. If it's a strange thought passes your mind that maybe you can cut that, do it. <laughs> um, so I think that's really good advice. Um, That's really good advice. For me, if I was thinking of it from my life, I would say um, the feeling that you have when you're writing of being out of control and having no idea what you're doing and sort of a kind of a weird, helpless, panicky, that's good. That's a good thing. Embrace that, you know, because that is that means things are happening that are interesting. Because you're front part of your brain that wants to know where you're going and is making all the outlines. I have a friend who does, he's made out, he makes outlines. He's never written a book. He has like these 70 page outlines. <laughs> he successfully completely kills the story because there's nothing left. You know, right. that part of you that's making the outlines is meaningless. That's for like proofreading. The part of you that's writing the book is writing the book. That's why I don't like people to say, well, you know, if you're going to have a character, make a dossier on your character. List all their traits. And, you know, it's bullshit. Every character, it's like every egg in your uterus or whatever, you know, is there from birth. Every character you want to write is, is there. They're there. Just name them. You name a character and suddenly it's like, you know, they're coming. You know, they're coming out. And if... If you don't have that, if the characters don't come, if you don't, if you, you know, if they don't sort of take over, get yeah. a different job. <laughs> that is seriously. You're that, probably yes, that's great advice. Probably not. This is probably not the job for you. Right. Like this, in this thriller that I just wrote, my my, he's a he's this guy. His um, his organization has been destroyed. He's sort of anonymous again. He decides to go home and he goes back to Nantucket. He was raised on Nantucket. Um, he goes back to the Nantucket of my Henry Kenneth book. So um, he needs all the same. It's a, it's a spinoff, but it's also a standalone. But anyway, I wanted to have a little Jack Reacher thing on the way back to Nantucket. So he'd like meet random people and help them out. Like he saves a girl at a gun show from getting mugged. And this guy tries to carjack him. Carjacking Mitch Stone, not a great idea. But he helps the guy, you know, uh, Helps the guy out. He gives the guy twenty five hundred bucks because he's hitting this nightmarish down swirl of. And I won't go into the details, but just you know, horrible. And the guy says to Mitch, "He's this is great. I mean, I mean, I appreciate this so much, but like, who has twenty five hundred bucks in cash in their car? You know." And Mitch says, "Bad people." <laughs> uh, but he's 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 trying to be the shepherd, Ringo. Anyway, uh, and so the last one I wanted was to have him um, help this kid, like help a, a runaway kid. And the kid took over the book. The kid yeah. became the center of the book, um, both morally and in terms of the plot. The whole plot hinges around the kid. So I have to believe, you know, I'm not going to do a bumbo jumbo about the kid as a separate life and he took over. But I'm, I do believe that that kid was living in my unconscious and wanted to come out. And the I, the real idea of the book, of this kid forming this, the central moral hinge of the book, was always there. I just didn't wasn't aware of it consciously. Right. And the more you press and, and you know, kind of everything in and try to be un- totally in control consciously, the less chance that kid has to come out. Right. You know, he's another, oh, it's pulled over the side of the road and offered to adopt the kid. And I was like, what are you talking about? What are you talking about? 
very nice guy. And I realized that a lot of his advice was so basic because he's literally used to teaching seventh graders. You know, and if you're writing on the seventh grade level, this guy would be a huge help. He talks about how to invent your dialogue and stuff. You know? it's like, but the stuff I write about is, I talk about is a lot more complicated. And okay. I don't think there's just that many people. I get about 250 people watching each one. The same, I think it's the same hardcore 250 people. I'd like to meet them all. That would be fun. In Rome, it would be spectacular. Online, it's like nothing. But anyway, I'm on TikTok. I'm on Facebook, but, you know, that's because yeah, I'm old. It'll, we'll get all those links and stuff from you. Um, you'll, you can send those to our email, and we'll make sure they get linked in the description. Sure, absolutely. People can absolutely find you. Um, it has been amazing talking to you. Yeah, That's for fun. sure. I am <laughs> Star Golden, and my book, Origins, is on Amazon. If you guys are looking for it, this is... SF Rogers. I'm still in the throes of edits, but I promise Execration of Autumn's coming. Thank you.